0: You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artist intended to demystify and celebrate the classical music and opera art form. My name is John Jacob. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes and Audioboom. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the series via your preferred app so you'll get an alert every time a new podcast is published. This podcast is also a mild but pleasurable labor of love for which any support you can provide would be very much appreciated to contribute to its ongoing development visit thoroughlygood.me
1: and click on the donate button i've got to eat after all
0: Conversations like those you hear in the Thoroughly Good Classical Music podcast don't always happen at regular intervals. Sometimes these episodes will be recorded in blocks of three or four because the world of PR and advertising doesn't work in convenient blocks of time. Sometimes there isn't the luxury of advanced planning to accommodate my content plan or rehearsal schedules or concerts or any of that stuff. And why shouldn't that be reflected in publishing rates? What's the big deal in releasing two or maybe three podcasts in one week? You're going to get to them eventually, aren't you? Uh, Podcast 38 is a case in point. Double bassist Leon Bosch is playing a concert of specially commissioned works for the instrument he plays, written by a variety of South African composers. The concert is on May the 2nd at the October Gallery in London, and starts at 7.30pm. He and I met to talk about the concert, first of all, but our conversation soon followed a different path towards education, practice, knowledge and expertise. And I found it reassuring and calming. Leon is softly spoken, careful, precise, detail-oriented, and I find a strange kind of solace in that. These are values which thrive on solitude, and solitude is the best. Leon seeks and articulates purpose in everything including conversation and it struck me midway through our interview that he is one of only a handful of people at the moment who is strong on advocating both breadth and depth in knowledge. The world demands expertise though it doesn't appear to have the patience to foster it. In an on-demand world that thrives on superficiality, 45 minutes with Leon was just the recalibration I didn't realize I needed. We met here at Trinity Laban in Greenwich the day before he'd run the London Marathon, something he described to me beforehand as merely a Sunday sightseeing trip.
1: Well, this is the first public concert in this whole thing called the South African Double Bass, and the first public concert in the United Kingdom. I'd previously played a concert of South African music in the United States. But there's a whole series of concerts at the October Gallery, African music, African classical music. And this one is the third in the series, and I'm playing with Rebecca O'Mordi, a recital of four pieces written especially for me by South African composers. The first piece is by Michael Phil-Yoon, who is a South African cellist and conductor, and it's called Canticles of Peace. And it was written in 2016 for me to play with a Birmingham String Ensemble to celebrate South Africa Day. The second piece is called Isipu by Peter Klatso. Peter Klatso is one of the great South African composers, senior citizen, and really fabulous composers. He had many works performed in the United Kingdom before, string quartets, opera, various other things, and he studied with Nadi Boulanger. And it wasn't that long ago he thought that uh, he wanted to contribute something to my bass project. So he wrote this piece called Isipo, which means a gift, and it's beautiful. And the third piece, which will also receive his world premiere performance, is a nocturne called Old Nectar by David O. Oh. And David O, oh, likewise, South African composer, but he lives in Cambridge. And Old Nectar is actually an estate in Stellenbosch in South Africa, and I didn't make the connection. I was staying there recently whilst I was uh, conducting an orchestra, and I realized that there was this name, and I asked the man who owns it and runs it about and I realized that David O oh had actually lived on that estate, which is why I called his piece uh, Old Nectar. And the final piece in the programme is a Sonatina for double bass and piano by Grant McLachlan. Now, I met Grant probably 25 years ago in the United Kingdom when we played with my ensemble, The Music of Manchester, a chamber music concert which included a piece by him for this chart combination called Usterval Landscape. Anyway, at that point I liked the piece and I asked him would he write a bass piece for me. He said he agreed politely, but nothing happened for a long time. And then one fine day I got this email from Grant saying, I'm putting on a 60th birthday concert at the Baxter Theatre in Cape Town and I want to play, uh, have Ustav Landscape performed. Would you come to South Africa to play in the concert? And I said, I'd love to, but only if you write me the Sonatina. So he wrote the Sonatina and what a fabulous piece. So the Sonatina was included in that concert. So that was 2016, his 60th birthday concert. So that's it, the four pieces by four South African composers that I will play with Rebecca O'Mordy.
0: What What is the
1: challenge, do you
0: think, that composers have writing for the double bass? Because when I when I hear the double bass mm-hmm. as a solo instrument, I get the impression that it is a phenomenally difficult instrument to play soloistically. I don't know whether that's I'm a wind player, so I don't know. But
1: well, yes and no. I mean, the double bass had a kind of golden period during the classical era when bass soloists were almost ten a penny, and they were as popular as the tenor is today. The bass player got the goal, always. And uh, my relationship with the double bass was born out of this desire to play it as a solo instrument. As a 16-year-old, when I started playing the bass, I wanted to play solo on the instrument, and I realized the potential of it, because it had a voice which resonated with me, and that was how I decided I was going to speak. And then I discovered, of course, that there had been these great virtuosi throughout the history of the instrument, Boticelli, Dragonetti um, and others. So, so there was also a time, I have to say, in the 80s, when promoters were a lot more kind of curious and also brave, and they programmed more double-bass concertos and recitals than they do nowadays. I mean, you probably know also. It's the same for other instruments, if you're clarinettist, you get to play Mozart's clarinet concerto. Oh. Nothing yeah. else. If you're violinist, <laughs> oh. you get to play Mendelssohn, Bruch, Brahms, yes. Beethoven, Ch- uh, maybe uh, Tchaikovsky, maybe Glazunov. If you're cellist, it's Dvořák or Elgar. Yeah. And of course, there are hundreds of pieces written for these instruments. So the bass has a kind of interesting challenge. At most people would have heard of Borodin and Dragonetti and they expect to hear those pieces in public. But there's a lot more, and also one has a duty to add to the collection of music that already exists. So this a mission of mine, called the South African double bass, is part of this. Uh, my responsibility to increase the repertoire. Throughout my life, I played recitals of music by Bottesini and God knows Hindemith and and British composers also. But I suddenly realised that I'd never played a piece by a South African composer. And that, then I realised just because nobody had written anything for the bass. So I started this little project, and the first piece that was written for me was by a very good friend of mine called Paul Hanmer, who's a bit of a jazz legend in South Africa. And he wrote a piece called Scratch Pad and Six for Double Bass and Piano, which is an interesting piece, and it starts with a little some percussion effects on the piano, and then the double bass joins. And out of that I grew this project of four pieces which I took to the United States, and that has now grown to something in the order of three dozen new pieces of music all of them fantastic with British music also I mean I've had so much written for me I mean it's difficult to keep count of everything but I would think that overall I've probably had in excess of 100 pieces written for me and that is my contribution to the future because I realise it's all very well to play what already exists but you know it is, it's like with housing you know it's nice to live in old buildings but there have to be new buildings How because
0: a i notice yes. that you, you, you possibly have avoided my question what is the what is the challenge do you think? Uh, you know what do you look for as a as a as a bass player in a new commission
1: in a new piece of music i mean it's it's difficult to say the, first of all what what is music music is the expression of human life in sound and every composer, when they write something, has something they want to tell the world. When they write a piece for me, they write something which reveals something of their understanding of the instrument and also their unique journey in life. And it is my duty as a performer to fulfill the final stage of that composition, which is the performance of it. So I, when I have a new pieces written for me, I never pre- I, if I commission, I never prescribe details, I might say, look, I want something that's five minutes long or ten minutes long or whatever, but the rest is left to the composer because the, every human being has a view of the world and it, uh, we all have different ways of expressing that. As a performer, you express your view of the world in the way you play. As a composer, in what you write. I, as an artist, in what you paint. Everybody has their unique journey. But So when I am faced with new music to play, I don't judge. I have to do what is necessary. I have to approach it in the most principled manner possible to find the essence. But you talked about the challenges for the bass as a solo instrument. Acoustically, it is not as advantaged as a violin, which will soar out above the biggest orchestrations. So it requires skill on the part of composers when they write for the instrument. So uh, playing a Beethoven sonata on the double bass is possible, but it's a bit of a struggle because uh, it is slightly darker timbre than the cello. So even if you play at pitch... And I imagine that must be exhausting. It can be exhausting, but, you know... Because like you have further to go. I mean, yes. on, a, on a
0: very literal uh, this is point, true. you have further to go and further to stretch.
1: Sure. I mean, if the bass was easy to play, there'd be thousands of great bass <laughs> yeah, players. Yeah. Okay, and oh, there yeah. aren't. Yeah. So it's, it's a challenging instrument to play, but great advances have been made in uh, performance of the double bass. And also, you know, with interesting repertoire, more people wish to play this music. So, for example, I mean... Do, Botticini, Dragonetti. Initially, it was bass players writing for the bass. But then things began to change, in the 20th century in particular. I mean, Hindemith wrote a wonderful sonata, and Hindemith, was, of course, had this mission to write a sonata for every orchestral instrument, and he did that. And Then you have people like Nino Rota, whom we know from the film music world. You have Jean Francais wrote a concerto. You have Hans Werner Henze. You have Tubin composers that are not bass players, but great composers and of course in britain in particular during the 20th century a lot of great music was written for the instrument there were some very good players around Adrian Beers and, and Rodney Slatford who with through his publishing company made a lot of things available to bass players worldwide but there's a whole host of good music I mean, people, composers like Gordon Jacob who wrote a concerto for the bass you know uh, too many to mention Elizabeth the lutchens you know uh, Lennox Berkeley there's so much and today, i mean just a few weeks ago, I recorded a CD of 17 new pieces by great British composers. So there's a real kind of wealth of this music being written, and it's, the inspiration comes from the bass players who surround these composers who, who enter their lives. What do you think the,
0: um, the instrument allows a composer to express? I get the point that you've made about mm. how it's, it's really about what they want to say. I'm wondering... What the instrument enables them to say and how? Yeah. Do, do you see what I mean? I yes. suppose it's the qualities of the instrument, and that's not necessarily a sound. Yes.
1: The, the instrument has a particular character. And there are certain things which it does very well. I mean there of course, is the question of the visual effect of virtuosity in the instrument, to, uh, the agility to get around a fingerboard which is as big as the keyboard of a piano but you have one hand to cover that, is visually appealing, and also it is challenging for the player, but it's also, uh, for the composer to write well virtuosically, they have to understand the instrument well. So there's that part, the virtuosic part. Then the also is the melancholy, that you can express human emotions which are not that easily easily expressed on the instrument with a higher tessitura. In terms of deep cantabile, and also in terms of colour, the variety of colour one can get out of the double bass. And also it requires a level of concentration which is far deeper than superficial, because the nuances are so complex, and you have to listen very carefully to appreciate the complexity that can come out of a double bass. I mean, there are few people, I think, that listen to and appreciate the double bass as much as a critic I came across by the name of Professor Robin Stahl. He... Wrote a review of one of my recordings, and I was really, really amazed and very happy to know that he heard all the details that I had put into how I play. He spoke about all the things that I thought nobody would ever notice, and it's nice to know that when you put so much of your life into mastering little details, there are people who appreciate it.
0: What did he say? I'm getting you to recall something Uh, but I don't even know when
1: it was. Well, I mean, he, he spoke about for example how I played a particular piece which revealed its structure. He talked about nuances. He talked about humanity in the sound. He talked about some of these qualities. Now, how do you put humanity into sound? And how do you identify humanity in sound? And Life is so complex, and of course it's almost, it should be a foregone conclusion, that your sound has to be personal. If your sound is not uniquely personal, it's not a sound, it's a noise. The sound you make has to express everything you've ever experienced, your whole life. How do you express pain in sound? How do you express happiness? And this is what I mean about the double bass. The double bass has the possibility to express all these things. There's, you know, formal structure, for example. The uh, Grant's McLachlan Sonatina. The fi- final movement starts off as a fugue, but then he changes his mind and it becomes a really interesting and humorous uh, kind of battle between the two instruments, and each has to play the same material and see who does it best. Does the characteristic of the instrument, the, 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 the image that you paint, is of,
0: uh, I think, the, the, the point about melancholy is what re- resonates with me most. I wonder whether the character of the instrument can dominate you
1: or influence you? I suppose, I don't know, it's a two-way street. For me, what I appreciate about the instrument is the sound, the sound it can make, the quality of the sound and what you can get out of the instrument. Naturally, you have certain limitations and part of your challenge is to overcome those limitations and For example, I mean, you uh, might go to hear a double bass concerto being performed and you will think that it's not possible to hear the person play and it's because they haven't worked out how to play the kind of sound which projects. And I suppose it's much the same for for fiddle players or for cellists. It is possible to play a lovely sound which under the ear sounds beautiful but in a larger hall goes nowhere. So there are certain intellectual challenges which you have to, to master or you have to understand first of all. The instrument doesn't dominate me. I think we're a good partnership, that the instrument allows me to speak. We're so much at one. I don't have to make it do things which it won't do, and neither does the instrument make me do things I don't want to do. It ex- It is everything about me. I mean, I was to quote it, well, to use a trite little phrase, I suppose, I was born to play the double bass. I knew that three months after after I started learning to play the instrument. I played the violin, the cello, the piano, the recorder before that, but once I touched the bass, I knew that we were meant for each other.
0: How did you know that? Do you recall?
1: Yeah, I mean, two things. The first was that I was always happy to play it and I couldn't wait to get back to playing the bass. I I lived in the townships and I travelled home by train every night and I honestly couldn't wait, wait to get up in the morning to go back to university to play my bass in the room I was. The other thing that happened was a kind of crazy experience. I was 16 or 17 at the time, and I was still a cellist in the university orchestra in Cape Town. And the rehearsal finished early that night, and on, it was a Monday night. And usually on nights for orchestra, because it's so dangerous travelling the townships, my father would drive to university to pick me up and take me home at 10 o'clock at night. But this particular day, rehearsal finished early, and I had an hour to kill. And I went into the double bass room, to pass the time. And in the room, my teacher left the music of Dragonetti's concerto in the music stand in front of the mirror. And I mean, at this point, I was playing studies in first position and in second position. But something told me just to pick up the bass and to play Dragonetti's concerto. And actually, I played it. I had never learned harmonics or anything of the sort, and I just played Dragonetti's concerto. Had you heard it before? No. Never heard it. Never seen it. It was in the music stand and I had, didn't have the technique to be able to play it but somehow I played it. And following day I had a lesson with my teacher and I said he asked me to play Study Number whatever it was I said just hang on a minute can I play you Drug and Nature's and he said don't be ridiculous. And I played it and he said and he stormed out of the room and I thought my God I'm in trouble. But he came back probably a quarter of an hour later unlocked the cupboard pulled out a pile of music and said learn that for next week. So my experience the bass was interesting, to say the least. And I have to admit, it was exciting getting through these piles of music, and the the element of virtuosity was something that really ignited my passion. So for my final diploma recital in South Africa, for example, I played ten pieces by Bottasini. They couldn't have played ten Paganini pieces in a concert. And so I left university at 20. You've done all
0: of that by 20? Mm. Okay. Sorry, I'm
1: not joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's this a really bad thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and that wow. had actually set me up quite well. As I discovered, you know, long before anybody had quantified this whole thing of 10,000 hours, I realized mm. that it, the question of talent was irrelevant because when I entered university, I had no talent.
0: But you I had haven't. an appetite, that's, that's the impression that I have Absolutely. From it's like a, a hunger for, I'm, I'm doing that now.
1: Yeah, and I realised yeah. that the harder I worked, the more talented I became. And after, I'd done, after two, about two years of practising, I started winning all the prizes, string prizes at university, and I realised, well, that something happens, there are neural pathways which develop as you practise, mm-hmm. and I found that I'd go into the bass room in the morning and I'd try to do something which was seemingly impossible. But if I stuck at it all day and maybe for another day, suddenly it would be there. It would happen and it would be there for life. It wouldn't be just you could do today, not tomorrow. And I realized that there was something about this process that was important. So I learned the 10,000-hour rule and also I learned about the Pomodoro method before they named it the Pomodoro method, which is how to practice effectively. Remind me. I have heard of it, but I can't remember what it is. Well, you do intense bursts of work and then walk away from it so that the unconscious can do its duty by analyzing what has happened and also finding solutions for things that aren't working. So what I found was I practiced in 20 minute slots practice for 20 minutes and then I leave the room for five or ten minutes, come back another twenty So, and that I found was incredibly productive because the time I was away from the instrument I thought about what had happened and what wasn't working and what might I do to fix it. And then it was only about a year or two ago I was talking to somebody in America about how I practice. They wanted to know how I learned so much repertoire so quickly. And I talked about this way of working. And they said, oh, that's the Pomodoro method. And I looked it up and I realized that somebody had written a book about it, the Pomodoro method. So, you know, that's the other thing about talent. There's so many things that you discover when you're alone, working alone. So you have to spend time alone. I mean, I often ask this question, How many people does anybody know that learned to ride a bicycle by watching YouTube videos? No. You have to get on the thing and fall off a lot. And eventually you work out how not to fall off. Playing a musical instrument is much the same. It is through error that you learn to do things. But also, you know, the intelligent application of resources is important because when you have a lot to do, you have limited time and you have to use your time Efficiently, do
0: you notice in the students that you teach uh, the impact that YouTube has on them in terms of their learning? Well, you know, are they they soaking up learning points from YouTube and then coming to you at a level that you weren't at when you were at their age?
1: I mean, this is the curious thing that actually it is not necessarily helping because the engagement with YouTube of most young people is quite superficial. In my youth, if you wanted to hear how somebody played a particular piece, you had to buy the record, and you usually had to go to the country where it was sold. So, for example, if you wanted to hear what the Czech artists did with, let's say, Dvořák Fiddle Concerto, you couldn't buy Supraphon records easily in Britain. But if you happened to visit Czechoslovakia, you could find it. I mean, what I find disturbing is that there are a lot of young people, let's say, fiddle players, who have not heard of Kogan or some of the great fiddle players of the 20th century. And they're trying to make meaning of Tchaikovsky Phil And, of course, you can't understand Tchaikovsky completely unless you've heard how all the great artists of the last hundred years have approached the piece and what they found in it. it. It kind of shortens your journey. You know, there's a wonderful saying that you stand on the shoulders of those who went before in order to be able to see further. But we have this naive kind of way of imagining that by not hearing anything, we can come to conclusions which are far more informed. And, of course, this is not how things really are. So with my students I find that I have a particular philosophy and once they've internalised this philosophy then they learn more efficiently using all the available means like YouTube and recordings. But I also have an algorithm for them which I developed. I began to realise that young musicians are motivated almost, I suppose everybody is, but by this heroic outlook of music because we have a profession where the successful make a lot of money, and if you're not successful, same with athletics, you know, if you get this uh, Nike sponsorship deal and things, then things are fine. But
0: the winner takes it all.
1: The winner takes it all. So, everybody's trying to perform music f- from the wrong end of the thing.
0: And sure. they're trying to perform because they want to triumph.
1: They want to triumph, they want to be heroes before they've mastered yeah, the basics. Yeah, yeah. So, I have a very simple algorithm which is in four stages. The first um, stage is pure, the purely technical question of being able to play from A to Z. All the right all the notes, all the right notes, in the right order, in time and in tune. And then, once you've mastered that, then you have to re-examine the notes you're playing to find out whether they're long or short. Every note, that's articulation. And whether they're loud or soft, that's dynamics. And then you add that into stage one. So you then know that you're playing all the right notes, in the right order, in time and in tune, with the right dynamics and the correct articulation. Then the third stage is the intellectual part. What is this piece? Am I playing an elegy am I playing a sonata? And it therefore dictates how you approach it. If you're playing a sonata, you have to know whether you're in the exposition, the development of the recapitulation, which key are you in, which cadences, structure, syntax, and also phrasing. Every note has a purpose. It's either going somewhere or coming from somewhere. And if you can honestly, hand on hand, say that you've fulfilled the purpose of every note in the piece you play, then intellectually you've mastered it. And the final stage is the aesthetic one the question of how do you make music meaningful and how does it become your version of that piece because if you're playing Salud d'Amour your experience of love is different from everybody else's and you cannot possibly play "Salut d'Amour in the same way as anybody else but what is it that's going to make your Salud d'Amour different based upon your life's experience so that is the final question the aesthetic one number four but too often everybody tries to begin with number four and working backwards is not always successful you have to make obviously they're also usually interlinked but you have to know what it is you're working at before you can arrive at this final product so I mean what's an algorithm
0: well it's just it's just a calculation it's an equation it's a do this then that and then that will happen
1: yeah it's an ordered set of executable steps Okay, to That's far terminated. more satisfying growing up, the way yeah. you said. Yeah. But, you know, so it take, it's like a recipe. <clears throat> yes. You want an outcome, and you have to follow steps in a logical order. An ordered set of exec, executable steps leading to a terminating process. Right?
0: It's quite liberating when you describe it like that. Yeah. Because when you break it down into separate tasks, actually, it's yeah. no longer this overwhelming, Super either as a, as, as a listener or indeed as a, a, a player, yeah. it becomes more manageable.
1: It's true. Everything is essentially simple when you break it down. It's easy to just practice, practice, practice. I mean, look, I spent a lot of time in music college with colleagues. And I lived in flats with colleagues who were practicing all the time. And I look back now, and in fact, I saw it then. You could, you could tell instantly those who just repeated things mindlessly and hoped that things would get better. They never isolated the problems to fix them, and of course we have—we all have this problem. We like to play for enjoyment, all the time, but you can be much more productive if you sensibly isolate what the problems are and fix them. And if you—if you come up with a solution, you have to ask yourself: Does it really work? At which level does it work—musically, technically, aesthetically—and then you have to refine your solutions. Every—you know—we also have this quaint belief that you know you can every piece can be played. In a million different ways, they're all legitimate. No, they're not. You have to answer the questions of idiom, and also the unique demands of the composer. The way, for example, you know, I have the same approach with music as I do with literature. When I play music of a composer, I try to play all the music they ever wrote. So, Bottesini, I've played almost everything that Bottesini wrote. But you know, when you play, when you, I've recorded twenty-eight pieces of Bottesini, and I've played a, f- a few more, so maybe in excess of 30-something th- pieces by Bottesini. So when you've played that many pieces by Bottesini, you understand Bottesini.
0: <laughs> yes, you are. I think you're allowed to say yeah. that, yes. Yeah.
1: And you know what it is you have to do when you're faced with a new piece of Bottesini. When I p- play Kuzovitski, I've played all the Kus- pieces that he wrote, and I know how he played the bass and what he expects. When I play Dragonetti, I understand how Dragonetti understood the bass, and I know what to do with every piece. But I can do it, in the end, is a different question. But I know the challenge. For example, as a conductor recently, I've been, I had to conduct Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony. And I have to admit, the only piece that I really understood of his symphonies was Number 1, because I played it a lot. And doing Number 5, which I'd played as a bass player but never conducted, was always remained a bit of a mystery to me. But once I had studied it properly, I really began to understand what it was that made Prokofiev the symphonist that he was, why his symphonies are different to Tchaikovsky, or to Rachmaninoff, or to any other Russian composer. They're all Russian, but they're different. And we have to ask the question, why? With literature, I mean, if I I going to read an author, I don't just buy one book, I buy the lot. And at the end of that process, I understand how they work and what it is they try to tell us about how they understand the world. You probably know Ishiguro. First book of Ishiguro, The Unconsoled, I read. And it was truly traumatizing. And I thought, my God, this is really quite crazy. And then I re- I've read everything else that he wrote, and now I really understand what Ishiguro is about.
0: You have, a, um, you have an extremely analytical mind, and you have an insatiable appetite, it strikes me. I mean, I don't know you very well, so uh, apart from this conversation. Is that is that fair? Are you aware of that?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, I, people point this out to me. I mean, one of my very good friends I, who was a flute player at college, Says to my wife, Leon doesn't do small talk. No, <laughs> <laughs> sure. and that's it's great for interviews. <laughs> it's really good for interviews. <laughs> that <But> is true. <coughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very outcomes oriented. I read a lot, and I have my special subjects. And I have a, a golden rule: I never talk about things I know nothing about. So the things that I've studied, for example, politics, I will talk about it because I understand it, and I've read thousands of books about politics, music. I spent thousands, tens of thousands of hours performing it, analysing it, thinking about it, buying music. My, my bookshelves at home are laid into the point of collapse and the garage is full of the books that we can't fit into the house and, you know, recordings also. I had a collection of about 2,000 LPs and then I started to, you know, replacing them by buying CDs. And now I have few thousand CDs and I have been getting rid of, rid of LPS oh, just
0: it's, I'm, I'm, the image in my head is, is terrifying of things it's, stored in places okay, it's,
1: it's crazy <laughs> but you know now of course you know with but you know digital files are not quite the same but I, I mean I have a methodical way of dealing with things with reading for example you know things are very much more multidisciplinary nowadays. We had the period of specialization, where if you were a biologist, you were a biologist, and you understood nothing about anything else. If you were a lawyer, you were a good lawyer, but you knew nothing about anything else. And of course, that's not a recipe for great humanity. You have to have a broad understanding of the way the world really works. I mean, just recently, a colleague of mine made a comment on Facebook about the climate protests. And he was very derogatory about what people were doing to highlight... The problem that we face potentially as a global society. And I posted a link to a book which I thought you should read, because it made the point that George Monby makes in his analysis now, is that it's the system that is to blame. And for you and I individually, changing light bulbs is not going to do very much, but we need systemic change. But I couldn't find the words to really tell him what I meant. And of course, if I told him what I really thought of his opinion, it would be not acceptable. So I very discreetly just said, I wonder whether your, son, your scientific prowess matches your musical mastery. And for me, that's an article of faith. If you once again to express an opinion about something, you have to understand it. My father was much the same. South Africa, during the late 70s, developed a nuclear program. And in keeping with a lot of people around the world, there was opposition to this nuclear program because there was a suspicion that the motivating force was weapons and how effective was it going to be for providing power. And after my father passed away, I was in the house and I found a section in his bookshelves devoted to understanding nuclear power. And I thought, well, if you can do with anything, you have to study it. Let's Let's just think. Nowadays... If you go to do a bachelor's degree in anything, you have three years. You'll have a reading list with some compulsory literature and then some advisory things. And the truth of the matter is that if you read half a dozen books a year, you'll end up with a degree. That's 18 books on one subject. makes you a specialist, apparently. So if we want to be specialists ourselves, we have to read a bit more. And I promise you that there are subjects that I have studied much more than just 18 books, so economics.
0: Is it, is it addictive?
1: It's not, not addictive as such, but what it reminds you is that once you start learning about something very deeply, you discover how little you know, and then you have to keep finding out. Every book you read raises more questions. And then you have to answer those questions. You have to ask the right questions to know where to look for the answers. So, for example, in the the current period that we live in, politically confused, apparently, but this confusion is brought about by structural realities. Everybody talks about fascism, and they mention the past. They mention Mussolini, they mention Hitler and various other proponents of that school of thought. But then I asked myself, what is it that we really understand about fascism? How do we define it? What do we mean when we use the word in society? Because everybody talks about the rise of fascism now in, the, in 2019 and the dangers of fascism. And I realized that I didn't, couldn't really give an accurate definition for the 21st century. So I bought myself a book. And it's the, you know the, 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 the series called The Short Introduction to... You can buy it about any subject. I bought myself this, the short introduction to fascism and I'm halfway through it and it's just providing me with a bit of clarity about how this monster has changed and why it is important for us to know what it is we're up against
0: is that need for information not symptomatic of the 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 way in which we retrieve information now, which has essentially fragmented subjects and made it very it's very much on demand uh, and uh and actually, our appetite, our stamina for going in deep, is is less than it yes. was perhaps thirty years
1: ago. With everything, I mean, it it is not just politics or economics where our understanding is shallow. There's a wonderful book written by a man called, called Tim Nichols, and it's called The Death of Expertise. Just because we have Google doesn't mean that you you an expert if you could just look something up. You have to understand it and depth of understanding comes with a minimum of 10 years of en- engagement with a subject where your informed guess is not just a guess it's informed and I mean we live in this period where everybody knows everything you have patients who go to doctors and tell them what's wrong with them you know and and we, you know the, which is not right yeah, but, how
0: can that possibly be right now the, the,
1: as, as a musician you see I'm very concerned about this because there's this difficulty in society the, les- the listening public as a whole has the difficulty of distinguishing between Mozart and Haydn. In our orchestras there are certain things which should have been taken for granted which don't happen anymore. Ensemble playing. It's not just a question of playing the same piece in the same room at the same time. It's about how to properly play together. Youth orchestras. Do they know how to play a cuchillo grosso? Do they know how to play a piano as opposed to concertino? When they play Tchaikovsky serenade do they know what are the essential ingredients that make the serenade the serenade? and what are the challenges of Tchaikovsky's serenade as opposed to Dvořák's serenade? When they play Vivaldi, Lestro Monica set with the concertante, different concertante groups, what are the unique challenges for each of these concerti? And this is completely and utterly absent. We're now in the school of playing where if you move around a lot, it's exciting. Oistrakh, as you know, the violin never moved, neither did he. The only things that moved were his fingers and his bow arm. And the music-making was unbelievable. Now, of course, you have a school of fiddle players who make more money than Oyster ever made in his life. But musically and intellectually, in every other way, they're inferior to that level of understanding.
0: But it's, that, that that you're articulating is also similar, I experience, as a, as a listener and the way in which people talk about the, the art form. Because there is this sort of fear of going in too deep as well. There's, there's fear of detail, yeah. and and actually for me, as uh, for me, given that I live vicariously through other people's professions, uh, I love the detail. And so, uh, quite a lot of the time, when I've been marketing this podcast, I sometimes felt guilty about wanting to know the the detail. And I don't I don't know whether we can whether we can ever return to how it was, or whether we should.
1: Somehow we're going to have to. Because if we don't, the outcome is not going to be a pleasant one. I mean, if we have economists who don't understand economics running the world, then economically we will implode. If we have military structures who don't understand anything about defence but all about attack, then we're going to end up in yeah, trouble. Okay, if yeah. we have artists that don't, you know, you know uh, take orchestras.
0: Well, that's reassuring to hear yes, no. No, I haven't considered that.
1: So it has, this has implications for everything. It's not just about music, it's not just about economics, it's not about money, it's about everything. It's about how we live, how we organise our planet. There are few people, uh, you know, the transformational thinkers, the great thinkers, who are in control of anything. And I have a theory about this. I'm 57 years old, and I was inspired by a generation of great artists, great scientists, and just wonderful people. Think of Carl Sagan, for example, who programmed the missions of Voyager 1 and 2 into the heavens to go and explore the outer planets, and they're still flying today. He was a visionary. He saw the world for what it was, a little speck in the vast cosmic arena. And we don't have this perspective. We have a few astronauts that have flown to the moon and look back at the Earth, and they have a vision of the Earth. They see its fragility, and they see the, the duty we have to Earth. They, Carl Sagan talked about planet Earth. It's our home, our only home, everybody that's ever been, all of human history. And when you think about it like that... It, gives you a sense of urgency, and you asked me earlier, am I obsessed with everything I do, reading, music, there's the sense of urgency. If life is so important, and it's the only place in the universe that, because, let's face it, if you talk about the possibility of life elsewhere, everybody thinks that you're slightly crazy. Little green men, they will deride you with these things. But if life is so special that it only exists on planet Earth, then we have a duty to do something special with it, rather than to waste it we have to understand things properly and we have to leave our mark so my project, commissioning music for the bass is part of my contribution to humanity I want to leave something behind that is of value I, I'm not just here to indulge myself and to drink fine wine, eat good food and listen to good music I also want to leave something for future Do you drink
0: fine wine and listen to good music?
1: Well, I... In <laughs> just, I yes, please tell me that you yes. do drink
0: fine
1: wine <laughs> I mean, look, look, my father never drank and just towards the end of his life, he died of cancer. Just towards the end, he began to enjoy the odd glass of wine. But I, I drink champagne. It's my preferred tipple, And I'm not averse to living life in the fast lane. But all within reason. I get up early every day, very early. This morning, for example, I was up again at half past five. I set left the house at ten to six, and I've... Uh, it's midday and I've already taught for over four hours and I'll be going home to practice for another four hours and I've got a piano rehearsal tonight. So I use every minute of the day as well as I can. Yesterday I ran a marathon. And actually it was my first marathon for the year, which is, I usually run... Or suggest more. that you run marathons
0: every
1: year? A lot of marathons. And, wow, ultra, and ultra-marathons. I mean, ultra-marathons are my thing. I've run more ultra-marathons than marathons. So I use marathons as training.
0: And... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, i sorry, I realise I appear that I'm laughing at you I'm just thinking about all the exercise that I don't do every day
1: but, you know there are certain things that one has to try to do as a human being and I know that when I don't attend to these things I don't feel as well as I might so one has to be well in the physical domain which means you have to be relatively fit and able you have to be well in the intellectual domain and you can only be well intellectually if you read and you engage uh, with critical thought and you devote some time to dealing with that and I I personally know that if I'm not reading and I'm not dealing with major concepts I don't feel intellectually in control I feel like I'm drifting the final domain in which you have to be healthy is the spiritual one because if you psychologically not well you cannot function properly in everything else So, being unwell psychologically will have consequence for your physical condition. Being ill, uh, physically, always has a psychological origin, and I see this in a lot of my students, I see it in a lot of friends, and also I see it myself. As soon as I'm not functioning properly psychologically, then things begin to go a little bit strange. So I try every day to deal with all these parts of my humanity. To do something creative, to do something difficult, to do something beautiful, to do something crazy. But to to attend to every part of what we share, our common humanity.
0: You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good classical music podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audioboom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the
1: Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.